Welcome to the Resilient Life Hacks podcast. Join host Liz Myers and her guests as they explore resiliency through the lens of personal stories. Tune in weekly for inspiration and doable life hacks to overcome adversity and thrive in life. The opinions, beliefs, and viewpoints expressed by guests of this show are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of Elizabeth or Resilient Life Hacks Ministries. Welcome back to the Resilient Life Hacks podcast. I'm your host, Elizabeth Myers, and my guest today with me is Keith Renison. And I'm so excited to hear his story. He is the award-winning author of the book, Tenacity. You don't have to get lost in Nepal to find yourself, but it helps. And through this story that he's gonna share with us, he developed a whole new system of communication. So I'm really excited to hear your stories. Thanks and welcome to the show, Keith. Well, thank you for having me, Elizabeth. Uh, as we said in the pre-show here, I, I finally had somebody to talk to about my spirituality. This is <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this that's a lot great. of fun. Yeah, most well, time, I'm excited to hear. Most of the time I present to financial planners and I was a financial planner for mm -hmm. um, from 1975 to 2001. So. You know that's a little boring. You know, yeah, <laughs> like watching paint dry. So I, I really was excited to be able to hook uh, mm -hmm. up with you and, and do this today. So, yeah. so let me start with a couple of things right off the bat that fit with your strong soul, strong body kind of theme for today. God has been in my life as long as I can remember. I have had conversations with him. I love that book, Conversations with God, when it came out. I wish I'd have got that title. But <laughs> I have talked to God all day long for most of my life. And to be able to share with you today how my trip system and resilience in particular fits into all of that is wonderful. This is a great opportunity. And I'm really glad we, we met. Mm -hmm. I think that I'll start off with a little bit of how I got to this point. My mother was a very religious woman growing up, and so I grew up in a household where we went to church every Sunday, and it was a Methodist church, and that was just what you did. And, you know, with like most kids, you absorb some of it, but not all of it. It takes a while for it to kind of sink in and, and bring you to a place where you really understand it, and that didn't happen for me until I went to Vietnam. And I arrived there in, in 19, uh, November of 1970, and you're thrown into a war, the chaos, the, the, the things that are taking place around you are, you're like you're literally in another world. And boy, did my conversation with God, uh, those increased on a daily basis. And I held a close relationship with him throughout all of that. They say there's no atheists in foxholes. <laughs> and I think that's probably quite true. Okay. I came home Knowing that I wanted to be able to explore more spirituality, I had some insight when, while I was in Vietnam to be able to visit some Buddhist temples and some Hindu temples. They were both that were in Vietnam. And that opened the door to me to looking at a lot of other ways to be able to observe and understand how spirituality fits into other people's lives that weren't based on Christianity. It was my first foray into that world. And I, I found it really hugely interesting and fascinating. So when I got a chance to go to Nepal in 1992 with a friend of mine, we were both kind of crying in our beer on New Year's Eve because she'd just broken up with her boyfriend and I'd just gotten a divorce. And we said, okay, let's go somewhere. And so we picked Nepal. And so I went in 1992 and we had a, we had a wonderful trip. It was, it was really beautiful. 
And I'm gonna share a few photos as we go through here of, of some of the places that I was at while I was in with her in Kathmandu and around there. Kathmandu is a really old city and it, it has a lot of things that draw out your resilience because when you travel to a third world country, when you see these narrow streets and you see the, all the banners hanging from the, the sides and all the goods that are for sale and, and there's honking horns and motorcycles everywhere and it's very congested and tight and small, you learn to be in that traveling mindset of how to survive in, in a third world country and do those kinds of things. And I got to experience some more of their culture while I was there. This is the, uh, I'll move a little so you can see it. This is the Bagmati River in a town called Pastipadana. And the Bagmati flows into the Ganges in India and therefore that makes it holy water. And so a lot of people come down those steps that you can see on the side there and they will bathe, uh, they will pray. And this is also unbelievably where they do their funerals. And let me lean this way. You can see how they have a stretcher there with an orange cloth that has a body on it. And they dip the body into the Ganges to be able to bless it before they place it on the pedestal there to the right. And they then will cremate it. And that is part and parcel of how their culture runs. They cremate everyone. And then when they're all done and the ashes are all there, they sweep them all out into the water. And so the water's actually quite filthy, but the water then flows into the Ganges. And so they are assured that they are traveling down a holy path, which has some really beautiful thoughts to it when you think about it. When I decided that I really was hitting a, a midlife crisis and a mid-career crisis three years later, I decided I was going to go back to Nepal and I was going to go by myself. And I, I thought, you know, I, I, as I was thinking of what it was like when I was there on my first trip, I got to 19,000 feet and some of the views were spectacular. And there were places where I really felt like I could really sink my teeth into figuring out who I was and where I was going and, and why. And so I traveled over back to Nepal again in, in the fall of 1993. And when I landed in Kathmandu, they were unloading body bags because they had had tremendous snowstorms in the mountains and the avalanches were uh, claiming a lot of lives. So right off the bat, I was hit with a challenge and I had to really flex my resilience muscle to be able to figure out, okay, what am I gonna do? My whole trip just suddenly became undoable. And so I met with a friend that I knew at Kathmandu from the first trip and he helped me redesign my, my, uh, my destination. And I decided to go to a place called Kankanjunga. It was a, it's the third highest mountain in Nepal, and it's, it's a spectacular mountain, uh, and I never got to it. <laughs> when you get lost in Nepal, you wander around a lot, and you don't make it to your destination. <laughs> but uh, on the way, I got so many experiences. This was a bus that I rode for three days to get deep into the Himalayas, and as you can see, they have as many people on the top of the bus as they do inside of it, and the roads are terrible. Uh, you know, they're bouncing all over the place with potholes. We crossed a lot of small streams and rivers in that bus. One day, I, it was really hot. It was the third day on the bus. My, my frustration level was pretty high because the bus was really full. And what these buses get used for is, is for transportation of goods as much as anything else. And there was a lady standing in the aisle next to my seat. She had a chicken underneath her arm, and she was standing on a bag of grain. 
And the man in front of her had a pig. I mean, you know, they smell, these buses really smell bad. But and the, every time the bus would rock back and forth, that chicken would peck at me. And I have claustrophobia. So you can see there's a, a ladder going up the back of the bus. There's two more of those on the side of the bus up near the front door and by the driver. And I climbed out the window at about 40 miles an hour, grabbed hold of that ladder and pulled myself up onto the roof because I was, I'd had it with that chicken. Oh, <laughs> my, yeah. my resilience would only go so far, so far right. you know, there's, yeah. we just recently got our chickens for the first time. They're still young, but I was just thinking, man, it's what comes out the other end continually. I think that would make me climb the ladder. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, human nature is funny. We get placed in these situations and we think we, we have the tenacity to be able to push through and the resilience to bounce out the other side. And it was my imagination that kicked in because that was what I wanted to be able to do was climb out the window and get on the roof. And when I did, there was just three boys left up there and they, boy, they started laughing and pointing and they pulled me down because I, I was having trouble gaining my footing. And so I got up onto the roof and rode them until the end of the day. But as you can see here, it was pretty jungly where I was at. Let me lean the other way. This path is what I was on the, the first day as I was starting my trek. I was, I was about to head out. I went and put my pack on. We had arrived at the end of the road for the buses, and I had no, no more buses I could ride. This is where my, my trek actually started. It's really unique in Nepal when you think about how, how much wilderness they have because the roads go so long and then they just stop and you have to hoof it from there. Mm -hmm. And as I took off that morning, about eight o'clock and had my backpack on and I had taken my camera, I had two camera lenses and a whole bunch of film. And that's why you see some of these photos are in black and white because back in those days, I really enjoyed shooting in black and white. And I took off and within the next three or four hours, I was pretty much lost. I, <laughs> I knew I probably couldn't even find my way back to where I'd started. But you'd come to a Y in the path and you'd have to choose. Do I go right? Do I go left? Where is, which one's going to take me to the town I'm trying to get to? A town called Taplajun. And I would run across people as I was hiking during the afternoon, but none of them spoke English. I would say Taplajun and kind of point and they'd just nod. <laughs> you didn't know if you were getting good directions or not. <laughs> and so by the end of the day, I, I was pretty well lost and I really was struggling because I had lots of blisters on my feet. Yeah. I had packed my boots for going to, uh, to the Everest base camp and they were boots that were meant for cold weather. And I was still in jungle area and it was, it was just terrible uh, how many blisters I, I wore. They were on my toes as well. I ended up with 12 on one foot and 11 on the other. And all of that really made me dig down deep and try and pull myself back and bounce back each day because putting my shoes on each morning really hurt. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it was one of those things where you just had, I had no choice. I had to find my way back out. And for the next four days, I wandered through a lot of places, through valleys that were deep with fog and clouds and really made, uh, made it treacherous in how I would try to move and get to where I'd want to go. And the paths that I followed were like this one with this fellow here. He's carrying goods that will go to people back into, into the wilderness. And he carries them from Kavali, where the bus stop ended, 
to wherever there he was going. And oftentimes it's a small store that's along the way. There were small little places that sold uh, soup, and tea, and goodies that I could eat, but they uh, they were few and far between. And there was two days where I didn't run across any of those at all. Hmm. And at the end of each day, I would have to find a place to sleep. And one night I stopped by, there was a husband, a wife, and a little boy by the side of the path, and they had just been fi finished working with their, their um, mandarin orange crop uh, that they were growing. And the little boy spoke some English. It was really cool. And he and I actually conversed enough. I found out that he had been going to a UN-sponsored school with an American English teacher that the UN had brought over, and it was three valleys over, and he'd go over there two days a week, and they were teaching him English. And so I told him my problem that I was lost and I was trying to get to Top Lejeune and could he help me? Well, he talked to his parents for a few minutes and then he came back to me and he said, my mom and dad would be very honored if you would spend the night with us and we would love to fix you dinner. And so they did. They took me in their hut, which was not too far away. And they fed me a dinner of what's known as dalbot, which is a lentil soup. It's pretty bland. And we sat and talked. He interpreted and boy, was his father proud. Wow. You could just see him. Here's a six-year-old little kid talking in two languages, and his dad was just beaming. <laughs> it was really neat to see. But one thing that was hard was I brought Tabasco sauce because I remember that the food was pretty bland. And when I opened it and put some in my doll bot, they could smell it instantly. Well, they almost drained one of my bottles <laughs> of Tabasco sauce because <laughs> they liked it so much. Oh, wow. When it got dark, uh, they said they'd take me where I was going to spend the night in the little boy. I had a headlamp on because uh, it was dark by now. And he took me around the back of the hut. And there was a lean-to that I saw when we arrived, but I didn't know what it was for. Well, as we rounded the corner, there was a great big water buffalo laying there. And he said, you can sleep next to him. He's very warm. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And I thought, I don't want to sleep next to a bull. There's just no way. And But I, I, I couldn't say no. And he had spread straw out next to the bull that I could put my sleeping bag down on. So when I laid down on it and I looked up at the night sky, uh, it was filled with stars. And I could suddenly see there were bats way up high in the rhododendron trees. And I started feeling sorry for myself. It was like my feet hurt. I've you know, I'm lost. I don't know these people. I'm sleeping next to a water buffalo. I mean, how bad can it get? Yeah. And I, I then it kicked it kicked in that, wait a minute, you asked for this adventure. You came here to solve your problems. And you're being faced with new challenges so that you will start to experience some of these things like resilience. You've got to learn how to pick yourself up and move forward with a positive attitude. So before I went to sleep that night, I journaled a little while and I meditated a little while and then I went to sleep. And actually I, I slept great next to that, that water buffalo. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think I was going to, but I did. Was he as warm as they said he was gonna be? <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> he smelled terrible, but he was uh, warm. <laughs> yeah. So which was worse, the bull or the chicken? <laughs> Oh, definitely the bull. <laughs> the claustrophobia that I got with the chicken was, I, claustrophobia is a very, yeah, that's an awful affliction. Boy, when you suddenly can't get any air, yeah, that can really be rough. Mm -hmm. Well, the next day I happened across a little dog that uh, I named him Buddy and he, he was following me 
and I could tell that he was just kind of lost and he didn't look very good. And so when I stopped uh, to have a cliff bar that I got out of my pack, I threw a little to him and pretty soon he was eaten right out of my hand. <clears throat> and he, he was pretty friendly. Well, I had been trekking for two days by this point, trying to find this town. And I hadn't had a bath in four. And so I came across a little stream and I followed it up off of the path. And there was actually a little pool that I could kind of sit down in. And so I took all my clothes off in the, in the wilderness and mm -hmm. sat down in that pool with a, with a uh, bar of soap. And when I got all cleaned up, I trimmed my beard and tried to make myself look presentable and smell better. And I got to play with the dog. I was throwing water at him. And so pretty soon I pulled him into the pool and I gave him a bath. I scrubbed him down with my, with my bar of soap <laughs> and I trimmed around his eyes and around his ears and his, his paws. And when he dried out, he looked spectacular. He was just prancing, walking down the path in front of me. He felt like he was just the king of the hill that, that day for sure. But at the end of each day, I learned that if I would meditate and if I would journal, that I would start to get the things out of me that where I was struggling with at home with my midlife and mid-career crisis. And those things really started to, to ebb a little bit. I didn't see the fear behind them before like I, like I did. And it was then that my, my trip system was starting to evolve in my writing. I started seeing the four words, tenacity, resilience, imagination, and purpose more in what I was writing about. <clears throat> Because it takes all four of those kinds of words for us to get through life, whatever character traits you've got that you want to be able to try and live by. And they started showing up more and more. And I started to see what the desires were that I really wanted when I got home, which one of which was this. I wanted to be a public speaker when I got home and I wanted to write a book. So my journal turned into my book and it took me almost 10 years before I started doing the public speaking. But I did find it. I worked my way towards it. And if we don't set those goals in life with resilience in times that are really bad, and we've got something to shoot for, it makes life really difficult. But if you find those, those levels of, of desire and those levels that make life and the purpose that you live by worthwhile for you with certain boundaries that you want to live within, and certain people that you want to invite in and keep those boundaries as you live moving forward, your life will have a lot of quality to it. I found that an awful lot of what I was doing was really starting to make me feel like I was, like I was designing my purpose in life, where I was going and what I was going to do and how I was going to do them. The scenery where I was at just got more and more spectacular, even though I was lost. I took a lot of pictures. This one's um, just of a snow-capped peak in the background in a deep valley. Some of the deepest valleys in Nepal, uh, in the world are in Nepal, and they make for spectacular pictures. And as I would walk along during the day, it would really stir my imagination about my dreams. And that's the quality we kind of lose as adults, is that childlike quality to dream. We all daydream. But do we dream about what we really want? If your meditation can turn into that, you'll start to see where you really want to go through your dreams. It's a lot like brainstorming in business. If we take the time to slow down and brainstorm with other people, you suddenly start to see how different people have different perspectives on the same problem, but you all come up with different outcomes. And what all this generates is happiness. I'm a happy guy. 
I love my life. I am having a ball. And I have had, <laughs> and I have had through most of my life, even many of the things that were difficult. There was a time when I got home when I decided I wanted to race bicycles. I raced cars for 12 years and that was a lot of fun, but it came, became expensive. And so I thought, well, I, I want to stay in shape. I want to have a strong body. I want to have a strong body for my soul to reside in and, and to enjoy. And so I took up bicycling and then I, I joined a club that was a developmental club that taught us how to race. And that was in 2000, uh, yeah, 2002. I was 54 years old and I, I was terrible. <laughs> Most of these guys I was riding with and racing with, they've been racing for 20 or 30 years. They started when they were in their teens. And I was always at the back of the pack or way behind everybody. And it took me a long time to learn how to train my muscles to be able to do what they needed to do, both in endurance and in strength, to, to put up with the, the, uh, the arduous nature of being a cyclist and a bike racer. So the first race that we had that year was called the Rocky Mountain Senior Games. And it was four races in two days, two time trials and two uh, road races, one each and each day. And so it, when I started that in 2002, I, I wasn't finishing anywhere near with the pack on anything. And I was way down the list on the time trials. Well, over the next 14 years, I slowly worked my way up to where I was finishing fourth, fifth or sixth in almost everything which wasn't bad yeah. for a guy my age That's and good. learning how to race that at that age. Mm -hmm. And my final race, after 14 years, I placed third and made podium. It mm -hmm. took me 14 years of continually coming back year after year after year, putting up with sort of the humiliation of why is this guy even racing? <laughs> I say my friends and competitors would look at me like, what's he doing here? He never wins anything. But I, on my last race, I, I took third place and it was like the pinnacle. It was, yeah. <laughs> I, that, was, that perseverance paid off. It did. It really did. And I went home that day and uh, uh, my father was still alive at that point in time. He died two years ago and at 97. So I've got a long ways to go. So that's why I stay in shape. But I yeah. called him that afternoon and I got home and he said, man, I'm really proud of you. He said, I, I wondered why you didn't give up years ago. He said, <laughs> <laughs> he said, you've really got uh, the patience of Job. And I said, no, I've learned how to bounce back. Resilience has that bounce back factor. Yep. That when you hit bottom and you know it, you can use that energy to pull yourself back up and propel you right into a whole bunch of new ideas. If you've been brainstorming and meditating and journaling, you can propel yourself right into those new ideas with an energy that you won't find anywhere else. Resilience has that, that it's a fun energy. I love resilience. I, I don't like the fall down, but I love right. the bounce up. <laughs> the rebound is the nice part. Really, that's what it boils down to. And I try to do it with gratitude. Gratitude is, it's talked about a lot, but it's given a lot of lip service. You got you to gotta walk the talk if you're going to do something like that. You've got to, if you're grateful something, really be grateful for it. Yeah. It's like today I woke up to six inches of snow in Denver. <laughs> I'm grateful for the snow in the wintertime because I love to ski. I really enjoy going up in the mountains and skiing and enjoying myself. But now it's spring. I'm ready for my bicycle. So yeah. I wasn't really grateful for the snow this morning, but we yeah. need the moisture. 
But those are the kinds of things that over my lifetime, I've learned to be able to look at with my relationships with my friends, my, my bicycling buddies, the people that I climb mountains with. I really look back at all these things about how we need to celebrate the small successes. And I think that that's something that a lot of people don't do. They always have the lofty goal and they won't be happy till they get there. But there's a lot of stuff that happens in between before you raise up to that goal, if you make it. And if, if you celebrate the little stuff along the way, then your resilience has power behind it and it has appreciation and you really look forward to the next little success. I look at this success today being on this podcast with Elizabeth, because this is something I've been wanting to do. And so when I wrote her and she accepted, it was like, wow, yeah, cool. I get to be on this podcast with her and she's going to film it. I can get to put my ugly old mug on the, on the screen and people get to look at my pictures and we're going to have some fun. So this was a success for me. I really, I, you can't tell. I love to talk. <laughs> I never would have guessed that. <laughs> And so when I get this kind of an opportunity, I, when we're done today, Elizabeth, I will thank God for the, the experience to be able to be with you today. Yeah, and same I, here. I enjoy hearing the wisdom that you have to share with us. It's been a lot of fun. I really have enjoyed it. Do you have time for me to go on to a couple other things? Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> okay, cool. I mentioned to you that I had Buddy, and he had been walking along with me for, well, three days at this point. And I was sitting on one of these ridges like you see behind me. Let me switch pictures to a different one here. Some of the mountain scenery is just spectacular. This is a mountain called Machu, excuse me, Machu Pachari, um, which means fishtail mountain. If you were to see the reflection of this mountain in a lake, it looks like a fishtail. And I was hiking along by myself. I had not seen anybody all day long. And... I was out of food. I didn't have any food left. And I was down to a very little bit left of water. I hadn't run across any streams that day. And I sat down on a ridge top. It's like 4.30, 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And as I would look to the right of the ridge and then look left of the ridge, I couldn't see any smoke coming out of any huts, roof uh, for anyone cooking. I couldn't see any paths with any hikers or trekkers or even just natives walking on them. I was just I had hit the bottom of being lost. I just didn't see anyone. So I decided to sit down and just lean back against a tree and rest for a few minutes and figure out what I was going to do next. And as I, as I did that, I started to actually fall asleep. I was pretty exhausted at this point. I'd been lost at that point four days. And I, I was really tired mentally, physically. I, I kind of just gotten to the bottom of my barrel of energy and I fell asleep sitting there, but it wasn't a deep sleep. You know, I was just sort of dozing. And I heard footsteps suddenly coming up the path behind me. And I kind of rolled my head to the side and I opened my eye and I looked and there was three of the toughest looking men coming up the path. They were in very tattered, dirty clothing, excuse me. And they were carrying some kind of implements like shovels and stuff. And I couldn't really tell what it was. And, I closed my eyes and I said, God, I, I wanted you to get me out of here, but I did, this doesn't look like the, these guys Not are- this way. <laughs> <laughs> I suddenly felt like this was going to be maybe trouble more than it was going to be pleasant because mm -hmm. I had been warned when I left to do this, this uh, impromptu trek because I had no time to research it, 
that this area had been known to have some violence in it and that people were injured or robbed. So I was a little fearful for a few minutes. <clears throat> and then I heard the footsteps stop and I heard them kind of talk amongst themselves. And then one of them came forward and tapped me on the shoulder. And he said, are you okay? And I opened my eyes and I looked up at him and I said, you speak English. <laughs> 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 Which was so nice to hear at this point. Yeah, I bet. And he said, yes. And so I explained to them my problem that I was lost and I was trying to get to Top Lejeune. And would, you know, could they be of any help to me? Well, as it turned out, in the next valley over, they were going to spend the night at one of their cousin's homes. And then they were going to Top Lejeune the next day. So I was actually going to get where I was going. So we got to their little huts where the cousins lived. And I thought we were going to spend the night at this first set of huts. And so I took my boots off and I started trimming my blisters and trying to make them feel better and put some Neosporin on them and bandage them up. And they came back after they'd been gone trying to make arrangements for us. And uh, he said, we're not going to stay here. We're going to go down the path about a 10 minute walk and we're going to spend the night there. And I said, oh, okay. Well, my backpack weighed about 60 pounds with all the stuff that I had in it. And that's part of the problem why I wore the blisters. But I didn't want to put my shoes back on because they hurt. So I dug my flip-flops out and put them on and I put my backpack on. Well, that extra weight walking on a little half inch of rubber flip-flop <laughs> did not give you a lot of stability. And it wasn't, it was, the, the paths were very rocky. And so it wasn't very comfortable and it was getting dark. And I, uh, I turned my flashlight on on my helmet again and I could, the three guys were all walking in front of me and I could see a light on a, a bench in front of a house up ahead of us. Now, everything in Nepal is done with terraces. They build out from the mountain with dirt and then they build a wall and then they build a house on that, on that flat area. So it's all terraced up. All the rice paddies are in terraces filled with water and growing rice and other grain. And so we'd been passing those, those rice paddies and then suddenly we came to this house and I could see it looked like a kerosene lantern on a, on a bench outside the front, front porch. Well, the, this wall that had been built up to put the dirt in to set the house on was about eight feet tall. And they stuck rock out the side of the, the wall and made a staircase. So you could just step on each step of rock sticking out and go up. Mm -hmm. But there was nothing on the left-hand side, obviously. There was no railing, only the wall on the right-hand side that the rocks were sticking out from. And I watched each of the three guys in front of me. Boy, they just danced up those stairs easily, just... You know, they weren't carrying a backpack or anything. And probably then, weren't wearing flip-flops either. <laughs> no, no. And so I I really, um, I tried to be careful and I kind of sped up a little bit and I stepped up on the first rock just fine, no problem. But when I slung my left foot up to get up onto the next step, I caught the right side of my big toe on my left foot and I took all of the hide off of it. I, I really scraped it deep. And it just hurt instantly. I could tell that I'd really done some major damage. And so I quickly got up the rest of the steps and I made a beeline for that bench with that, that kerosene lantern on it. And I put my foot up on my knee and my, my, I, I was just spurting blood. I had I'd hmm. cut it that deep. Oh. And so I folded the skin back over the injury that because it was just a flap that had been torn away and I just folded it back on and I gripped it really hard so that I could stop the bleeding and 
instantly I got sick to my stomach and threw up. Mm. It was just, it was traumatic. You know, yeah. I, I was already sick. Uh, I was already tired. I already felt bad. I hadn't had anything to eat hardly all day long, except the bad water I had found. And so I threw up and these three guys and, and a bunch of the farmhands that worked on the rice paddies were all kind of gathering around me. And so while I was squeezing my toe, I took open the top of my backpack where I kept my first aid kit. And I took it out and I had some alcohol in there and some cotton swabs and a sewing kit and all kinds of stuff in there. And when I took my hand away, the bleeding, it actually really slowed, the, you know, how compression will hold mm -hmm. a vein and it'll actually start to, to uh, constrict. And so the bleeding, it started to stop, but my, I, my hands were all covered with blood. And so I took some alcohol and, uh, and started to cut, and that really stung. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <That> open wound. <laughs> yeah. I had some methylate, which is even worse, but I thought I'd better uh, try and disinfect it somehow, and methylate does that. And so I, I actually, uh, when I put the methylate on, I thought I was going to pass out. <laughs> mm. yeah. But I, I looked at the wound, and I knew that I was going to have to give myself stitches mm. because it was horseshoe-shaped, and it was connected on the flap at the bottom. And I thought, okay, well, if I could put three or four stitches around that, I could, it could hold together. Then I could wrap it with tape and, and gauze and, uh, and then elevate it for a while. Uh, maybe I'll be okay. And that's what I ended up doing. I ended up, if you've never given yourself stitches, you don't want to do it. <laughs> I got a lot of bad blisters from running, but never, never that bad. I never had to sew anything back on. So, oh, well, I, I, I really, uh, I had no choice because I knew that it would get infected if I didn't treat it somehow mm -hmm. and uh, it held and you can actually still see the little scar on my, mm -hmm. on my big toe on my left foot. You can still see where that flap of skin was put back on. Mm -hmm. So I spent the night with them. And the next morning, I, when I got up and got ready to leave, I could barely get my foot in my boot. It was so swollen. And uh, I, I got it in, and they told me how to get onto Top Lejeune from this house. And as I started to leave, the dog didn't want it. Buddy didn't want to come with me. And the one little boy standing next to him said, he kind of wants to stay with me. Would, 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 you, would you let him stay with me? And, and I said, of course. I mean, I just, I was just feeding him and taking care of him. He said, but he's so soft and clean. I've never seen a dog like this. Because <laughs> <laughs> most of them over there are in terrible shape. Um, but he did. He looked wonderful. So that really kind of made for a very kind of a nice ending. Yeah. Uh, even though I hobbled my way into Top Lejeune, um, I never made it to, to Kenkanjunga. Mm -hmm. I just couldn't walk anymore. I just, yeah. I, I rested in Top Lejeune for four days and then figured out a way to get back to, to Kavali and then mm -hmm. get back to uh, Kathmandu. But all in all, I was gone a month and I spent almost two weeks in the mountains like that. And it was, wow. uh, it was quite the trip. And it gave yeah. me my trip acronym and it gave me a lot of things to talk about, about things like this with you, Elizabeth. So yeah, it's been a pleasure. Yeah. That, that's an incredible, amazing story. Could you just real quickly tell us a, about the trip and what that what those stand for again? Of course. Um, it's called the TRIP Communication System, and it's tenacity, resilience, imagination, and purpose. And with people in business, I help them learn how to teach their clients to be tenacious, how, how they can do planning for their finances and things in the, in the future, 
how they can be tenacious about setting things up and learning how to be tenacious when the market drops and not to uh, lose their, their, um, their tenacity and to become more panicked and in a chaos mindset. And then to learn how to bounce back after the market has dropped, use that resilience that we talked about to bring mm-hmm. you back to where you can actually then make some good choices on the way back up out of a problem. Mm-hmm. And imagination is all part of how you put the plan together. And, and this all fits within with life, how you plan your life and how you yeah. do your everything that's in your life. I told you that I would also then on this last thing, Elizabeth, tell you what my life purpose was. And I'm scrolling to it here so I can oh, read yeah. it. I can read it to you quickly. So I, on my last day while I was in Top Lejeune, I decided I needed to write a life philosophy because I wanted to live by something when I came home. I wanted it to be mine and how I wanted to, to design it. And so this is what I wrote sitting there that day. I intend to live my life with creativity, courage, and faith. I will be benevolent with others and accepting of their beliefs while seeking a life filled with happiness, laughter, moral strength, wonderful health, accumulation of wealth, and wisdom while being surrounded with love. I like that. It really encompassed everything that I was after. And it made me really feel like like I was going to be okay when I got home that I was going to be able to see and do all the things I wanted to do because I had a roadmap. I had a path. Yeah. And how did you enact that or use that when you returned, you know, when you're <clears throat> I put it up out of the wilderness? I put it up on my wall. I see it every single day. Mm-hmm. And because live a life with creativity, courage, and faith, that sounds easy to do, but to implement that, mm-hmm. to be creative every day and to find new things to be creative with and to have courage to push through the hard times and to say hello to new friends and to say goodbye to friends you want to not have in your life anymore. We have all those kinds of things that happen in relationships and to have faith that God is taking me where I need to be. We are lost. (laughs) Yeah. Well, well, aren't we all sort of lost? We're all trying to find our way in life all Mm -hmm. the time. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it definitely, definitely all of it applies I, especially filled with happiness, laughter, and moral strength. I mean, that's easy for me. I love all of those things. Mm-hmm. So, and being surrounded with love, you know, I, I pick good people to be in my life. I choose them. And mm-hmm. therefore, I'm surrounded with happiness and love all day long. Much like you, I have a feeling. You've got that. Yeah. You've got a very happy spirit. Yeah. Well, I, I feel like, too, the more we give kindness and love, the more that also influences the people around us. Yeah, and, charity um, and uh, giving is definitely a part of my life. I've I've yeah. been on the boards of a number of charitable organizations over my lifetime, and I love I love being of service. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, I sign my emails Grace wins because I know that I'm a person who needs a lot of grace, and therefore <laughs> I'm also willing to give a lot of grace yeah. because I think we all need grace. And fortunately, there's an infinite supply. So yeah, I saw that on your email. I don't know if you saw the one at the bottom of mine. It says everything you desire is just outside your comfort zone. Yep. That is very true too. The way I, I word that, as I say, the fruit is out at the end of the limb. You know, you stay close to the trunk. You got to get out where the, the limb is thinner. Definitely. So I know your, your vacation didn't quite go as planned. You never made it to the place you intended to go. But uh, when all is said and done, do you think it was worth it? Are you glad oh, you took that trip? Yes. I mean, there hasn't been many regrets in my life. I look at it all as a learning experience. and. Mm-hmm. 
I don't think God would have put me in, in front of all of those things if it wasn't meant to be something I was supposed to do. So I have a book that I, or a cap that I wear that has resilience. I get a lot of comments <laughs> on this all the time, wherever yeah. I go. People uh-huh. say, whoa, I like that. Yeah. Having, a, having a cap that says resilience is kind of cool. Yeah. And it, it sparks conversation and you mm-hmm. get to meet people and learn about them. And, yeah, definitely. And I feel like these last couple of years for all of us have been a time when we need resilience. You know, there've been lots of times, you know, globally or, or nationally in America where we feel like we kind of recover from one thing and then something else oh, yeah. sweeps us off our feet. And um, so I think there's just a collective sense of how do we navigate these? How do we get through these difficult times? So I, I really, I, go ahead. I, I completely agree with you. I, our our American system was originally thought of as an experiment, and it's it's an ongoing experiment that ha, that has changed. But what we but what our founding fathers set up was so cool, yeah. and we can't we can't just toss it aside. We have to mm-hmm. examine it and understand it and follow it as much as we possibly can. Because this, mm-hmm. as much as I've traveled in the world to uh, just not just Nepal and India. And, Jordan and Egypt and Belize and Australia. And I actually went to Antarctica last winter. So I have seen the best and the worst around the globe. Mm-hmm. And the best is still here. Yeah, we're very unique throughout history and even, you know, today. And I think a lot of people who've been born and raised in America don't realize how unique that is. And I really, we homeschool. So studying history with my kids and oh, studying good. everything that came before, I'm just like, this was like, crazy different at the time to yeah. run a, to run a nation this way to, well, to say that the people had a say in what happened so oh yeah it was totally to, so radical yeah and to use the phrase american exceptionalism is not accepted anymore and it's terrible that we're losing it because we are still exceptional we mm-hmm. are so different than many other places on the globe and we have to honor that mm-hmm. without a doubt that's why on a lot of my slides if you i don't know if you noticed it or not especially the ones that were on um on the uh, the resilience slides themselves. Mm-hmm. I've got in the bottom left-hand corner. I've got the flag. Yeah, and I have to honor that every day in my life. That I mm-hmm. I was a soldier in Vietnam. I fought for my country. I have mm-hmm. to stand up for those same things now, even though we've we've got a different uh, philosophy kind of blooming mm-hmm. that we don't. No, mm-hmm. many of us don't want. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, thank you also for your service. We appreciate oh, that as so, well. So, thank you. Mm-hmm. Well, this has really yeah. been a pleasure. I yes, really enjoyed being here with you. I, I hope I didn't talk your ear off. Oh, no, this has been great. I've learned a lot. I love hearing your stories. If our listeners want to connect with you more and find out more or connect with you to see what kinds of things you have to offer or get your book, can you tell us where they can find you? Definitely. Uh, my book is called Tenacity, as you said when you introduced me. You don't have to get lost in Nepal to find yourself, but it helps. It's on Amazon. I published it through their uh, through their publishing system, so it's on Amazon. My name's in the upper left-hand corner of the screen right now, and my website is just my name, keithrenanson.com. But there's four N's in Renanson. It's R-E-N-N-I-N-S-O-N. I always tease people and say I sound like I'm a two-cycle motor engine. It's Renanson. I'm also on YouTube, and I'm on LinkedIn, and I'm in Facebook. All right. I'm pretty easy to find. All right. And those links will be in the show notes for those of you who are listening or in the notes below the video on YouTube. And feel free, please, to connect with Keith and to learn more about what he has to share because he has a lot of other great ideas that we just don't have time to get to today. But (laughs) 
Thank you very much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure talking to you. You're welcome. Thank you. You have been listening to Resilient Life Hacks with Liz Myers. The opinions, beliefs, and viewpoints expressed by the guests of this show are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of Elizabeth or Resilient Life Hacks Ministries. To learn more and download your free guide to Liz's top 20 Resilient Life Hacks, go to resilientlifehacks.com. Subscribe now so you never miss the life hacks you need to live the life you want. Thank you.